Welcome to the Wellbeing Connector. I'm your host, Roy Reed, uh, executive coach and co-author of The Trust Transformation. Uh, this is sponsored by the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing, and I'm excited today about our topic. We, on a monthly basis, get to interview and talk with people doing interesting and groundbreaking work as it relates to creating wholeness, uh, creating greater health and well-being for uh, those in the medical profession and providing care to patients. Uh, today I've got two wonderful guests. One is a returning guest and friend of the show, uh, Dr. Romyra Mansfield, my co-author of The Trust Transformation and the Chief Medical Officer at Advent Health Apopka. And joining us today is Michael Rucker, who is the author of a, of a fascinating new book called The Fun Habit. And uh, Michael has uh, done tremendous research in understanding uh, how fun has a significant impact uh, and might be the answer to a lot of questions that people have in terms of managing their health and well-being. So, Omira, Michael, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You bet. Uh, Omira, let me start with you. I felt like it would be important to uh, have a, a physician voice uh, with uh, Dr. Rucker as well on the show today to provide uh, a, a relation, if you will, to all of this. And, and you've been a big proponent of well-being in your role, both as the Director of Emergency Services at Celebration, now as Chief Medical Officer at Apopka, and really a leading voice of it during some of the more challenging times that we've had over the last few years. Um, talk to me about how fun has been part of your discipline uh, and the balance that you bring to life. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I'm really excited about the conversation that we're about to have. It's, it's interesting that it took a crisis, I think, to bring out the necessity of fun. It's rather ironic, but so much of it had to do with what do we do to actually clear our heads for our family who really deserves us to be there in our entire self, um, away from work, despite all of the distractions, particularly during COVID that happened 2020, 2021. So I fully credit my kids with why I actually cared about this and why I love the idea that this became a habit because truly that is what it, what it became. Because otherwise I think we fall in the habit of just continuing the daily crisis mode that we all were in. Um, but the other piece of it, too, is so practicing emergency medicine now um, for some time, you can also fall into the habit of the doom and gloom because inevitably you're going to come across patients every day that you can't help but you know feel empathy. But that empathy can sometimes cause you some uh, moral burnout or, or that compassion fatigue that we hear so much about. So it's how do you find the balance to that to not let yourself live in that space all the time? Um, and then really just own the piece of where fun can be very therapeutic and really necessary, particularly when everything else seems so dismal. Um, so that's really where it came to be. I think the other piece I'd mentioned, too, is being able to speak about this openly at work uh, created another safe space, not just for me, but it allowed me to build relationships with team members who oftentimes and, and I, I, I've noticed that as you move up um in your leadership opportunities, and certainly if you have a seat in front of your name somewhere, it seems to be harder to relate to people. And that's unfortunate because I would hope that that focus on relationships is most critical when you have a C or other title in front of your name. 
And so talking about fun, sharing what I might have done at home with my kids, with my team, really also allowed me to transcend and create these stronger relationships that they could identify with. You know, I think um, over the years, there's a few videos that I like to use to uh, demonstrate what that looks like. And so I remember being in a forum um, with about 600 leaders and sharing a video where during a really high time of crisis, I jumped into the pool with my clothes on. And then that happened to be shared across our company, which was kind of insane to me. But a few things resonated. One, the number of people were like, it was so nice to see someone, a physician or a leader. I also heard how nice it was to see a woman leader mm-hmm. be open about the relationships that they have with their kids so uh, and demonstrate it to the world. And so I, I don't hesitate to share those. I will share for the group. Um, one of the other videos I love to share was of when my daughter first learned to ride her bicycle and how I went running down the driveway Ooh. and down the street of our home. Um, and I'm really excited to share that very recently my son learned how to ride his bicycle and I recreate the exact same moment for the sake that he also gets to participate in these moments of joy. Um, and we have these, these things to look back on that are just pure fun. And honestly, even just talking about it makes me smile because I have this video now that I look like a crazy woman and I don't care because I was having fun. And more importantly, my son was having fun. So the point of sharing all that is it's about feeling open to be vulnerable, not caring about what title someone might use with you, whether it's leader, physician, uh, C-suite member, and recognizing that it is therapy for you, but it's also therapy for others. Mm-hmm. So very excited that Mike is on um, and this topic. And not only that, but that we, we our literature, um, our research in this truly has been just our own live, our own life lived. Um, and I'm excited that there's actually literature to support the work that we're doing and the life that we're living. Wow. Thanks for sharing. Mike, let's uh, let's talk about the fun habit. Um, tell us about your journey to it's always there's always story behind putting a book out. And um, and usually it's our life work. And so tell us about your journey and what brought you to the fun habit. Yeah. So the personal journey, um, I'm an organizational psychologist, but been part of the positive psychology consortium since its beginning. So I was invited to be a charter member. So I've been looking at happiness as a construct for quite some time and um, really interested in that. And as it progressed, you know, it, the, the Congress started about the beginning of, of the millennium. And, you know, so we we're kind of off to the races and it got interesting. You know, there was the World Happiness uh, Report and, you know, we were uh, conveying a lot of tools to all sorts of practitioners on how to make people more happy. And, you know, I think at that point it was welcomed, but at a certain turning point, we sort of got an overemphasis on that science, right? We're essentially now positioning happiness as this end goal, and we were eroding emotional flexibility. Like if I'm not happy, then somehow something's wrong. Mm. And I, being kind of a zealot and believing in the science, um, and also to some degree up until that point being Pollyanna, um, you know, I was like doing all the things that you could to sort of optimize my life for happiness, right? 
in 2016, kind of fast forward to why the book came about. Um, unfortunately, I lost my younger brother to a pulmonary embolism. I kind of came out of the blue. And then after being a uh, avid amateur endurance athlete, I found out I had undiagnosed injury and was going to need to get a hip replacement, um, you know, in my early 40s, which essentially means, uh, you know, you shouldn't run again, right? I mean, I think most of the folks in this audience will know you're now putting car parts in your body. So unfortunately, car parts have limited mileage. And if you don't want to go in for revision, you know, the suggestion is um, find other forms of exercise. So the problem there was, you know, a few things, right? One, my identity had gotten shattered because now I was an only child and my brother was my only sibling. But also, you know, I've always kind of had low level anxiety and yet that had been mitigated by my ability to run. And so now, you know, essentially my form of self-care had been taken away and I didn't really know how to put that back together. Mm. But because I was such a believer in this, I really tried to will myself out of this malaise instead of trying to unpack the trauma, um, you know, try and, you know, figure out what my alternatives were. I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just going to treat each day, you know, like it's a new and good vibes only. Right. And quite quickly, um, we now know that that's a pretty straight line to being unhappy, actually to the point of clinical outcomes, paradoxically. Um, but that wasn't that well known back then, right? Now we have a word for it, toxic positivity. But um, around the same time, and I would just say this is happenstance, I framed it as serendipity, but it's always hard to frame bad luck as serendipity, right? Um, a bunch of great research, uh, the research I really like uh, in this area, Dr. R.S. Mouse out of, out of Berkeley, um, started looking at folks that kind of held happiness as an end goal, as an output rather. So it's not problematic, right, to value happiness, want your family to be happy, um, you know, to look for opportunities for joy, but kind of making it an end goal. Uh, you know, what you do is you start to ruminate on the fact that you're placing happiness out here. Um, yet generally, most of us can find these moments of joy, like the doctor just described, right in front of us, and yet we devalue them, right? And so, okay, all of these tools, you know, like gratitude that were kind of failing me because, again, they become maladaptive if you're in a place where you need to, you know, unpack some pretty gnarly things that have happened to you, um, weren't helpful anymore. What could I do? And uh, what I stumbled on, you know, which is essentially a facet of mindfulness, is that we most of the time can use our autonomy to bias uh, our lives towards fun. And so... In conjunction with that kind of insight and finding a, a pretty significant research gap, I was also doing my practicum work, working with a California hospital group who just had a hospitalist who had committed suicide. And so um, they brought me in, you know, as an expert in positive psychology. And we were initially trying to find methods to build resilience on top of these already busy schedules. And I think you guys know this well. I mean, it's always interesting you know, especially in a vocation um, that's working more than 40 hours a week, uh, you where you start because you really need to worry about moral injury at that point, right? Like, because any of these interventions essentially become an extension of work. And so I, you know, along with trying to essentially treat myself, I was trying to figure out what could I do um, to help these physicians as part of a broader uh, workplace wellness committee. And ultimately, we couldn't find much that we could do at the broad base, given uh, you know, the intricacies of this particular group. Um, our broad based intervention ended up being uh, uh, malpractice 
help because we knew that was one of the highest correlated things to burnout, right? So at a broad base, that's essentially what we worked on. But at the individual level, I did work with some progressive physicians that kind of were interested in, in where I was going with this. And sure enough, the ones that were able to create transition rituals between their work life and you know, two of these were hospitalists. So, you know, it's not like they had a ton of time affluence, right? I mean, I think hospitalists arguably are some of the most time poor in any vocation, right? But yet by being mindful and understanding you need to reserve some of this time, you know, for the folks that you love and being able to provide your own bumper rails and scaffolding really was restorative. And now we understand why there's this concept called the hedonic flexibility principle where we know the folks that are able to take some time off the table for themselves generally are able to show up the next day, even if it's a hard day, with the energy to tackle it because they know that fun's around the corner. But unfortunately, it, especially if our lives are really habituated, um, it, you know, what happens if, if we're living a joyless life is we tend to not encode information. We generally just operate with the wisdom that we have, right? And physicians have an amazing amount of pre-existing uh, information. So they use those algorithms, but because they're not encoding new information or the experiences within their practice aren't things they necessarily want to remember anyways, time really, the perception of time just starts to go bananas, right? And so you don't have these moments of joy, um, you know, that you can kind of look forward to, and that becomes problematic. You unpacked a lot in that. Let me let me ask one clarifying question because you used a term that really struck a nerve with me as I was reading through the early part of the book, time affluence. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and what that construct means in in relation to this idea of fun and and how it affects the context of how we're living our lives? Yeah, it's multifaceted, but at the crux of why it's important, right, is I think, you know, so many of us, whether that's meritocracy or, you know, the way we were raised, really try to be financially affluent and look at that as an ideal because it does give us valuable resources to do some of the things that we want, right? But what we found, and there's amazing work happening in both psychology and social psychology, is the folks that have a bias towards also looking at time in the same way. So, and even more so, right? Because time isn't something that we can make more of, right? We don't know how much we have, but it's essentially a finite resource. When folks look at affluence with regards to the time they have in the same way, so it's a tool to use my agent and autonomy to do things that I want to do. Those are, you know, correlate with much happier people. And of course, you know, intuitively, once you understand the science, that makes sense, right? Because now we are making these choices and making sure that, you know, when we look back at the time we spent, it's not with regret. Like, I wish, you know, I could have done that. And so folks that kind of understand that and there's, you know, multiple layers to this, right? You know, the an acceptance of mortality, you know, an understanding of just knowing that you do need to index uh, things that are of interest to you over time instead of continually doing things that you don't feel connected to. Um, you know, it's a rich uh, amount of, um, uh, you know, intricacies here that support that. But at its crux, it's knowing that with the time that you have, how can you spend it in a way that you want to spend it? 
That's that's great. And Omira, I, I have often heard you speak into this idea. Unpack a little bit um, from your perspective uh, this idea of time and what time we have um, to do what we need to do in life. Yeah, I think one of my most common phrases that people will hear me talk about is that time is our currency. So there are different ways that you can uh, quantify your value, but truly the reality is, is I, I, I have come to believe that that is the most valuable thing that someone can give us is their time. But it also means that that's the most valuable thing you can give yourself. Um, and just for the, sometimes to your point, having a, a contrast is helpful. Practicing in the emergency department again, can kind of take you down a rabbit hole. The flip side to that, though, is you can also learn from your patients. And and they they are a constant reminder of we have no idea how much time we have on this planet. So the question becomes, okay, so what are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. I don't mean to sound flippant, but when people will ask me, well, Doc, am I going to die? And my answer is, yeah, we all are. Just may not be today. But who knows, right? So without being the supreme being who may or may not know what your path is, what you're destined for, act like today is your last day. And it's interesting with that mindset, how you stop saying, one day I'm going to do X, or I wish I would have done X. But the, the reality is, is when I say that, it's because I've been at the bedside so many times and heard family members say, you, you can't die. We haven't done X. No, we haven't. And so... It's painful, but at the same time, man, what a blessing that they are that vulnerable in front of you and say those things because you can then internalize them and then turn around. And it's hard because sometimes living that way every day does seem like a lot and it seems like it takes a lot of intention. And the reality is, is it does. But it is the idea of, well, if you do it over and over and over, then you actually start to think about like, no, this is how we should live our best life. Um, and find the joy in those little moments. So it, it's, it's been an interesting process to look at it that way, because otherwise you do you, you can't get stuck in this idea of you have forever. But we really, really don't. Michael, take us back now. You, you started to unpack this work you were doing, and, and I think it will be interesting for listeners to um, hear about your findings and, and what you discovered on this this journey of, of helping this group really reconcile uh, this idea and find this this new path to um, open up a new channel of wellness in their lives. Um, so continue on with um, with this, this journey. Yeah, so let me first just be humble and say a lot of this is standing on the shoulders of giants. So, you know, coalescing the work of others. Uh, but, um, you know, it's in line with what, um, you know, Amira shared, and that is, you know, by figuring out what those simple pleasures are and being very mindful of them, I think an interesting sort of gift that was given to me, because in the literature, we often do talk about time as a construct. And I think treating it as a currency is important. But when you couple that same ideology, especially if you're using it effectively with attention, um, it can be sort of this additive bonus, right? And so you know, the idea that, yes, we have a finite amount of time. And so maybe we are making time for our loved ones or, you know, our family or, or things that we care about. But if we are still chewing on a, a heavy work problem, 
um, then that still is an extension of work, right? So it does take that extra step um, where, you know, relishing in the fact that you have these opportunities um, becomes important. And so in my work, to answer your question, what is needed is how can you create those spaces so that there really is a cognitive break? Um, because what we're learning, um, again, I forgot if we talked about it in the pre-interview, but having that cognitive downtime, we understand is as important as sleep. And so the same thing with sleep, right, is you wouldn't prescribe 11 hours of sleep, right? We know that there's a sweet spot. The same is with fun. And I think oftentimes that's the resistance. Like, well, you know, I want to live a purposeful life. I don't want to live a whimsical life or whatever it is, which is such a weird sort of friction to the message, right? It's actually quite the contrary. Like that's really where you're rooted in, that taking three hours out of the 168 that you've been given each week to just do something that fills your fun cup up, you know, is, is somewhat problematic psychologically. Like, let's start there and figure out why there's that resistance, right? But right. I, again, what I will suggest is in the work that I did, the folks that were able to integrate it really are able to create an upward spiral because so many of us find ourselves in a downward spiral. I think you guys know well, and it's a vocation that, you know, I have been paying attention to even since my academic days. Meant last year, we were at an all-time high, 63% of physicians reporting they're burnt out, right? So this is still very problematic. And the issue is, is that, and again, this is rooted in the science, uh, the hedonic flexibility principle, but we know this, is that once you get to a certain level of burnout, even if we say, hey, go look for um, opportunities for fun, it ends up being just to displace that discomfort or, you know, um, what we call in psychology negative valence. It's essentially just trying to get you out of pain. And it's generally things that don't lead to betterment, don't lead to core memories, don't lead to these, you know, amazing videos of jumping to a pool with your clothes on. It's things like mindlessly watching television or scrolling social media or, you know, uh, even worse, you know, drinking at the local bar or whatever, just to kind of displace the fact that you're not feeling comfortable. And so, Again, you need to kind of ease into this because it's not something you can fix overnight. And, you know, same, same goes with a lot of uh, things that we need to kind of course correct. But being intentional and finding opportunities, even in those small windows for betterment that are true joy that connect you to either what you're doing or the people that you're around end up not being depleting. And so slowly but surely, even if it's just in moderation, um, you know, it can get you back to a state that even if you're busy, at least you feel good about the life that you're living. So you touched on a couple of things in, in that explanation, which I think are important. And I'd love to hear you unpack it a little bit more. And then, Omar, I'd love to get your thoughts on it, too. But differentiating between mindless activity versus true fun um, in that regard, can you put a delineation between the two and what activities might we think are true fun that, that are contributing to that well-being, but may actually be more detrimental in filling that time? And then what are the fulfilling activities that people should pursue? And then if there if were any observations you had in the work that you did um, that illustrate that? Yeah. So there's a few things to unpack in your questions. That's good. We'll ping pong back and forth with these Stanford type questions. I love it. I'm here for it. Um, so 
the first thing to recognize this work, um, it comes from Matthew Killingsworth, that's done some amazing work in this area with Dan Gilbert, is that when we know people are kind of mind wandering through their day, you know, so even if it's sort of low level things that they think are interesting, but it's not really anything that they feel connected to, um, that generally is a fairly direct line to over time not feeling very good about how your life is going, you know, which can lead to, you know, how we uh, look at unhappiness, which is subjective well-being, right? So to the extent that even if it's small joys, like walking your dog or that good book that you're reading right before you go to bed, being mindful that this is something that I get to do and I want to enjoy it and it's in a part of my life does become important. And then um, what I you know, kind of colorfully labeled yielding activities is the second part to answer your question. And it goes back to this idea that oftentimes because we are so depleted that we are trying to displace just the discomfort that we felt throughout the day, we will do things like mindlessly, you know, watch social media. Um, you know, a lot of us, I'm guilty of this, will doom scroll news, like even though we kind of understand, you know, because, we, you know, if you watch it, one day a week, you get the context of it, but we'll watch news day after day, even though it's not really helpful or something that we feel is enjoyable. Um, it could be relationships of convenience or, um, you know, things that you're going to week after week that initially, because you like the people that were there, um, it became a habit. But then over time, those people attrited and you just kind of show up because, um, you know, that's something that you want to do. I mean, the examples are abound, right? But when we look at how we're spending our time critically, which as adults we generally need to do because so many of us, you know, when we look at time use studies, um, as a generality, 80% of the average person's time is, you know, over and over again, Groundhog's Day, right? And so to be able to build a tapestry, um, even again, if you're living in kind of time poverty, you know, just recapturing a few things, it does a few things. One, now you start to create new neural pathways, right? Because you have interest outside of work. And so we know that kind of feels good. But then two, it dilates time. So, you know, this idea of like, wow, what just happened to the last three months, which cannot feel that great. As long as you have an index of even simple joys, then we tend to kind of look back even at, you know, harder stretches of our life with the understanding that there's still joy there to be found, you know, within these nooks and crannies. And then hopefully, you know, as you sort of build your fun habit up until, you know, it, it's a healthy blend of life, um, you can, you know, find yourself into this upward spiral where you find that right balance where, um, you know, you're looking forward to the hard things. And then you also know that there's abundance of things to look forward to in your life. And so that's a nuance that I don't think, you know, generally I, I talk about up front, but I don't think I brought it forth in this conversation. One of the most interesting things about the hedonic flexibility principle and the folks that have deliberately kind of filled their fun cup, they look forward to the challenges the next day because they have that resilience, right? It's like, okay, I know my life is full of joy. Like, let's go tackle this big problem. And they also tend to be the most innovative because inherently we know, right? Like when we're depleted, again, we go back to those heuristics and algorithms that we taught, right? We we go back to the wisdom that we know because we just want to get from point A to point B and get the, the day done and do a good job. But if we're in a safe space psychologically, then we can start to attack things with 
and some innovation and creativity. And so we see the folks, again, that are doing this well, um, not just be more productive and enjoy the day more, but also um, these are the folks that are coming up with some of the most creative solutions. You know, I, Omara, you, you have been in a variety of roles and, um, you know, I mentioned you were running the emergency department and uh, at Celebration and now as chief medical officer. As Michael unpacks these ideas, how have you experienced this um, in, in those roles? These are intense roles. These are not um, um, average career paths. An emergency room, as you mentioned earlier, it, it's crisis the moment somebody hits the door. Um, and in your day-to-day work as a chief medical officer, you're, you're making decisions that impact lives. So as he talks about this, um, how, is, how have you constructed things in your life to uh, meet some of these uh, objectives that he's talked about? No, I think it's interesting to hear it um, described this way to then know, like, okay, actually, this is kind of what I did or what we did or what we encouraged our physicians to do. You know, just to, to comment on just we've seen this rise in burnout, just in medical in physicians, right, over the last several years. I, I think it looks like 2024, it may have come down just a little bit, but well over 50 percent of all physicians still are burnt out. So I can't say that that's like a tremendous win, but at least the trajectory is not up, up, up. Um, and certainly by by specialty, emergency medicine still has the highest reported rates of burnout with it being up two thirds of the specialty at this point. Um, but recognizing that this has been ongoing for years, there has been that focus on you can just keep going by day after day. And in fact, it's really um, challenging. I've seen just in the past four years across all specialties. Unfortunately, some of the things, Mike, that you talked about with people turning to adverse behaviors to fill their time, um, increase incidence of substance abuse, increase incidence of alcohol abuse, decrease and a lot of the things that we would categorize as things that bring joy or things that bring fun, because it just we just weren't thinking, I think, that way about it. It was more about survival mode. Right. So now it's really that opportunity to reset. But I think one of the things that I have personally observed is sometimes people actually have lost sight of what actually brings them joy mm. or what what do you do for fun? Because if you go at it long enough, you almost lose yourself. Um, I think about a colleague of mine who's like truly like was one of those best human beings. Like if my family needs a doc, he's who I'm calling to take care of in the hospital. Like great, great, great guy. And he just seemed kind of down. And we just started talking. We were having lunch one day and, um, and it, 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 you almost described it perfectly where you just started to go on like autopilot instead you're surfing, you're spending your time scrolling on social media and things that truly, I don't think anybody would describe it as truly like fun or joyful. It's just what you do, right? To pass the time. It's become our habit. So I asked him, I was like, Hey, like just curious, what do you do for fun? And he had to think about it. And I know he's a family man. His wife is a lovely lady. They have two daughters and he, it took him a minute, but he's like, you know what? I, I really, I love to play basketball. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm like, cool. When's the last time you played? And he had to think about it. And he used to play weekly with a group of other docs. And it had been six months. But it was just interesting that, like, he had to think first about what it was that brought him joy. But once he thought about it, you could see the reaction in his face, right? Something as simple as, I love to play basketball. Um, and come to find out, actually, it was a group of docs who actually used to all get together to do it at least once a week on a certain night. And so I'm like, okay, so I'm going to um, – I think it's important you do this. So 
I need you to do it, you know? So I'm encouraging you as a friend and as a colleague and as a leader because I'm worried about you to do this. So I started texting him every day for several days. And then finally, after about like day five or six, he he sent me a picture of him on the basketball court. And then I laughed because the text was, I'm doing it. Okay, now please stop texting me. My wife is asking. <laughs> yeah. Since then, I have met his wife. She's a lovely lady. But it was funny because the random woman like texting him to go play basketball. But then he got back into the routine of it and talked about how much she missed it. And now I see him and we, we laugh about it. This was several years ago. But it's almost like sometimes when when you're kind of in, in the thick of it, you don't even see it for yourself, right? Um, I see that in a lot of my colleagues. I think we can see it in leaders as well um, or in frontline team members. You might even see it in your family. But I think sometimes it's if you don't have the self-awareness and truly if you're in the moment, you you won't have the self-awareness. Who's going to be there to call you out to maybe even point out to say, hey, mm. what do you do for fun? When's the last time you did that? Um, and that's been interesting. He's he was the one that always like comes to mind. Um, but there have been more. And it's interesting how people don't expect you to ask them, what do you do for fun? It's so simple, though. Right. Um, but it's all it's always very telling when people take a moment. So, Roy, to answer your question, you know, it's something that I think we apply. But you also have to have that level of comfort with that person to to even ask the question. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a level of authority to so feel like you can ask the question. But I think when people recognize like where you're coming from and that your motivation truly is about like, dude, I, I'm worried about you. Mm-hmm. We truly, statistically speaking, we should be worried about two thirds of all healthcare workers right now mm-hmm. that um, it starts a really good conversation. That's great. It, the two things I want to unpack a little bit more in detail. Um, first will be, um, Mike, I want to hear more about what, what what have been the outcomes that you've seen and observed in, in the work that you're doing um, and, and what does that look like? And then from there, unpack the what are the practical tips and ideas that we could uh, provide listeners now to um, to put into action? Uh, what, is, what is something they could walk away and do today uh, and then create a habit around to do that? But but go, let's go back to outcomes. Talk a little bit more about some of the the uh, the, the uh, tangible things that you've seen come into people's lives when they take this practice on, when they are intentional about it and in, in living it out. Um, how, what are the benefits? Yeah, so I kind of want to start by using Amira's beautiful story because I think pulling out some of the nuggets will kind of be able to answer your question, right? Perfect. Again, I mean, what an amazing thing. It was just an invitation, right? And so let's start with the fact that when our lives are habituated, right? Um, again, our perception of time isn't doesn't uh, dilate, right? And so six months, once you are kind of mindful of it, like, oh my goodness, right? But that six months when it was perceived probably went by so fast because that's just an unfortunate component of the way our brain works, right? Is that Again, you know, when we do things day after day, it feels like it doesn't need to store new memories. And so even though in the moment, you know, it's still going to be agonizing or, you know, whatever the, the activity is, um, it's not going to feel that way. Right. And so someone coming in and just inviting you to be premeditated about what it is, um, it's such an amazing first step and one that I do recommend. So you'd ask for like, well, where is the place to start? 
especially if you're coming from a place of empathy and compassion, um, great. If you're trying to self-manage that, um, you know, because essentially the book is self-help, right? Then ask yourself, like, what is it? Because most people will be able to reconnect to things, right? And it does require a little bit of deliberation. And sometimes it requires you to kind of mourn some of the things that you did find fun and realize time has passed you by. Again, you know, my example is I, I was, even though I was never good at them, I was doing half Ironmans and Ironman. So um, in Boston Marathon, all, you know, every seven years falls on my birthday. That was a bucket list item that I kind of mm-hmm. had to mourn. So even though it would be in my fun file, it, you know, and I have more, it's not realistic anymore, right? So you, you kind of think about those, relish them. But then there's plenty of things. You know, I think you can see behind me a bunch of musical instruments. Music really lights me up. And I realized I wasn't doing that enough after, um, because I had my first child right after getting my PhD. So, you know, again, there would be these episodes where we do get busy, right? And so recalibration is always going to be a part of the process. Um but then lastly, like just re-engaging with something that's easily accessible. I think another issue that I see, especially if you're just kind of casually listening to this advice, is, okay, I know what it is. You know, we've been wanting to plan that European vacation for so long. Like, let's get that, take two weeks off, get that on the books, right? So here's an immense amount of money, um, this big only one-time thing. It's not a habit, right? It's, you know, you're just kind of saying, this is what I'm going to do, and then my life's going to change around. Um, and just think about all the inherent risks, right? What happens, you know, in this theoretical example, it's raining the whole time, you know? And like, so this one thing that you did to try and mitigate, um, which again, I would say is not very helpful in the first place, could absolutely go backwards. And so I think, you know, in, in my space of upstream services, I think that's why pickleball is having its moment, right? Because it's really a, really accessible activity that is not really, you know, it gets you um, into exercise and it's not like I'm advocating for it. I'm not a pickleball enthusiast, but I do like the fact that, you know, it's pro-social. Most people are there as much to talk and connect with their friends as they are to stay active. And so these types of opportunities that are really accessible. um, So you kind of baby step into it is another piece of advice. So to bring it all together, I think one of the first steps again, there's only 168 hours in your week, is to be mindful of how you are spending your time. Where are those opportunities? Even if it is you know, something where you don't have a ton of control over what the schedule looks like, generally we can still find pockets. And mm-hmm. so being a little bit premeditative, um, and especially if you, uh, you know, like a lot of us are in the sandwich generation, you know, because we're, we're I mean, let's just face it, this is an era of some of the most time poor people where we're taking care of our parents and our children and then have these crazy jobs, right? Where are those opportunities where I can co-create some of these experiences with folks that I really do want to integrate back into my life with the mandate that I'm going to be mindful when I do it, right? And so is that as simple as just putting a date night on the calendar, like making sure that it's on your calendar so it, it happens and you're creating this space you know, to have this joyful moment with the people that you care about. And it is really that simple. But, um, you know, as Amira suggested, so many of us, which is is interesting in context, right, have to be reminded, like, oh, yeah, it has been six months since I've done anything fun. 
The um, Elmira, unpack that a little bit more too in terms of um, some of the ways that practically you've um, applied the things that Michael just described in your practice. So I admit um, this is where maybe having a little bit element of OCD is beneficial. Um, but once you recognize it, you know, and it, there's pros and cons here, right? And people have different things that work for them because what you don't want to do is introduce something that's stressful to do, to create stress around. I have to do something that brings me fun, but what you have to find what works for you. Right. So I admit that I am a schedule based person because I, I'm right there on the cusp of, you know, Gen X and the next generation. And uh, if it doesn't get scheduled, it doesn't get done, which means that the things that are really, really important, just like my job, just like my kids' schedules, that gets scheduled as well. So it's funny that you bring up the example, but my husband and I have gotten in the habit of we got to put one date night a month and we do our best. So talk talk about how we look at our time and how we take that inventory and, and some of the tools that, that you've put into play in your life and have even made available to others to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's really about, you know, as easy as that sounds, you know, in, in behavioral science, we call it a pre-commitment, right, is getting those things on the calendar. Um, and so there's a couple of things there. One I've already touched on, making sure that it's easy to enter into those things, because oftentimes we kind of have grandiose plans because, you know, we want to you know, come out of the gate running. And I would suggest that that oftentimes um, is problematic. Um, looking at those transition rituals, right? Uh, a piece of science that I generally like talking about is uh, from Dr. Cassie Holmes out of UCLA. She has an amazing book herself called The Happier Hour. But where can you create those transitions so that the family or whatever, you know, even if you are, um, you know, uh, living by yourself, that you know this is time reserved for what I want to do. Um, and then if you kind of have forgotten what fun is, uh, what I suggest is creating a fun file. Like just figure out, you know, spend a little bit of time. Because again, we know, right, through behavioral science, when we are premeditated about that, when these opportunities do arise, then um, we'll make better choices because there has been some forethought instead of like, Okay, you know, I'm just going to binge watch the next Netflix show this Sunday because I haven't really thought about what I want to do. And so, again, as benign as that sounds, just a little bit of work ahead, you see the folks that are able to do that make better choices. And if you're in a partnership, what I found is those experiences are actually fun. You know, as a solo activity, it really is homework. I'm not going to, you know, oversell it. But what um, when, you know, people have done it with their children or their husbands to co-create you know, what are things that we can do together? There's generally this additive benefit. And then also, especially if you're the busy one, right? What what a nice signal you're sending to your partner that I care about the fact that we haven't been spending enough time together. So, you know, you get all this host of benefits. But again, to tie it to a bow, what we know is that it ends up happening instead of, you know, that six months going by and then wondering, oh yeah, I don't know what I've done for fun, right? So, your book has been out now just about a year. You've gone into a second printing. Uh, it's available in both hardcover and paperback. Uh, people can get it at, through Amazon, um, your website, other places like that. Share with me the response that you're you're seeing and the reactions that you're getting, The maybe some of the feedback on how people have transformed their lives 
through this. It's always important, I think, to to um, particularly as an author creator, um, to to see how your work is making that impact that you set out to do. Yeah, for the most part, the feedback has been really positive, which has been great. I think you know, as an author, when you get messages from folks that are like, you know, I was stuck and I realized how simple it was to get back. And I think that it's kind of this mixed blessing, right? Because some of the authors that I came through, you know, have written like these amazing, sophisticated books. And mine's really, again, a very simple manual that's like, no, this is all you need to do. And you can get in that upward spiral. But I think because of its accessibility, it really has struck a chord, um, especially with busy parents who mm. are trying to reconnect with their kids. And we're seeing so much of that, you know, um, I, I say this loosely, but as an extension of work, right, things I have to do because, you know, I'm already living this busy life. And it's essentially an extension of the maladaptive form of the hedonic flexibility principle, right? Because now you're looking at these additional tasks as not opportunities for joy, but for, you know, things that you have to do as a parent. And so the folks that have said that they really haven't done much with regards to, you know, the things they do week in and week out, but the ability to story edit it, uh, you know, I have a set of tools in the book called Saber and um, using those five tools to, uh, you know, essentially change their circumstance without changing much uh, has been a really pleasant surprise. And then, just the one-offs, right? Because it really is an invitation to get creative too with regards to where you find your fun. And so just last week, um, someone uh, wrote to me and said, um, in the book I talk about when I was a college student, uh, you know, I wasn't able to access a lot of things because I you know, just didn't have a lot of money and was able to get myself into a uh, cinematic party by volunteering. And she was someone uh, that was a teacher that wanted to go to this expensive conference. That was a lot of fun, too, because she knew who was going to be there, but there just wasn't an inroad to it. And so taking that small piece of advice of just there's always a back door into fun things to do, you know, with a little bit of creativity. So sure enough, she wrote to them and, you know, explained her circumstance, but said she was willing to serve a little bit and um, was invited to the conference, you know, free of charge and said she had a blast. Um, so. You know, uh, yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised. It's always neat when, uh, you know, you're able to create a, a positive ripple into the universe. Tell me a little bit about, you referenced it in that answer. You, you said that you have a, a essentially five things that you prescribe people do to take these actions. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, really quick. So story editing is uh, was a term used by uh, Dr. Timothy Wilson from the University of Virginia, but essentially most people will know it as reframing, right? Oftentimes, um, you know, just looking at our uh, pre-existing notions of fun, and if you feel guilty about just taking one or two hours, you know, off the table a week for yourself, even though there's this whole host of evidence that even if you're living your life, um, you know, with a purpose and and to be, uh, you know, through the lens of service of others. Um, knowing that this type of self-care will allow you to do that better um, is an important first step, right? A stands for activity bundling, and it's this idea that oftentimes, you know, even if there are things that we kind of have to do, um, if we incorporate our friends, if we change our environment, um, if we couple them uh, with things that we find pleasurable, so something is, 
simple as, you know, washing the dishes, but then reminding ourselves that we can listen to comedy, uh, you know, on our, our devices so that we can have a good laugh while we're doing it. Again, right, simple tactics, but really can change the circumstance of how you're spending your time. Variable hedonics, we really got into it, I feel like, is that idea that uh, there's a whole host of science to suggest that variety really is a spice of life. So if you feel like your life has kind of become habituated and week after week is passing you by, it's sort of a mandate to change that. And there's some opportunities in the book um, on how to go about that. O is for options. And we talked about that as well, right? So many of us are premeditated about the things we want to do. And unfortunately, we know when people don't do that little bit of homework, they tend to make poor uses when leisure opportunities do open up, right? We tend to just, because we're already kind of depleted, plop down on the couch and essentially try and pacify, you know, these negative feelings we have instead of looking for forms of betterment because we were premeditated about it. And then the last is reminiscing and reminiscing is essentially an ode to gratitude. It's kind of like gratitude on steroids. Um, I talk about the, this form of dispositional gratitude, which is really reminiscing about the fun things that you've been able to do. So it's a great resilience tool, but it also reminds you that micro joys, right? Really accessible joys tend to be abundant, you know? And so when you have those little moments to find them, they're there if you want to find them. Unlike happiness where, you know, whether it's a biological breed disposition or the fact that you're you know, just don't have time to sort of prioritize it can be elusive. Fun is generally there for you to find in the short term. Um, and again, over time, as we index these joyful experiences, really are the glue that, you know, um, leads to good mental hygiene. So you 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 probably noticed the increased grins and smiles on my face mm-hmm. and Omira's when when you entered the realm of gratitude. Uh, and I'll turn it to her to to expound a little bit on uh, what Michael said about the importance of gratitude as it relates to framing uh, this idea of fun. Yeah, and I I got to tell you, gratitude on steroids is like a whole nother level, and I can introduce that phrase into my nomenclature regularly. Um, no, so gratitude is something that, and, and I love that you you have this background in positive psychology, so this is obviously familiar to you. Um, something that I got introduced to probably 10 years ago, but really started to understand the value it could bring in the right situations, um, just as another tool, an adjunct for people to consider using. Um, and something that we've talked a lot about over the years in different settings, more so in the healthcare space, but something definitely that I think my family hears more than they ever want to about as well, especially my kids. But just this idea of in those darkest moments, same with those moments of like micro joys, right? But just being able to reflect, um, you know, I, I I love the idea of using almost like a, a gratitude reminiscence because I'll tell you that's when I talk about like the videos of my kids, that's what it is, is in a moment's notice, if I just need to level set my, my head for a minute, I pull them up on my phone and just take the minute, minute and a half to just watch this video that no matter what will make me smile, right? It's, it's like, it's like again, my own personal therapy. Um, but gratitude, we, we have shared this with our team members, you know, the idea of the three good things, for example, doing it as a team, um, being explicit in what that means. And it's been interesting as you've encouraged people, we encourage people to, to use that as one of many, many tools in their arsenal, right? What's available to them to tap into depending on what they need. 
to find people using it and then um, those that really have benefited. One of my favorite things was we did um, we did a burnout survey actually of the physicians at one of the emergency departments where I practice and said, let's just try something as a team and let's try gratitude because it, it, it probably isn't going to hurt, right? Um, and just this idea of introducing this concept to some who had never considered it, had never looked through that lens. And um, we started a text thread just as a gentle reminder at 9 p.m. to say, hey, guys, just just think about this. What were the three good things today that happened? And they could be clinical things, right? Being grateful for the team that responded to a patient that was in, in um, extreme duress um, or maybe it was more personal. And, and something that just that this was probably almost seven or eight years ago now. But that I particularly love was that some people started to share in the thread what their three good things were. And we could even find joy through hearing what brought others joy, which was an unanticipated byproduct that was pretty awesome because a few of those guys, and I won't name them, they know who they are. Um, they're not hyped to share joy, right? So to hear and, and kind of see into their heads the things that brought them joy and then also how some of them took the idea home to their families when they with them, they felt that they needed that. So I think for the right population at the right time, it's. It, I love that that's one of the many things that we can introduce to people as something that they can tap into. Um, and but to your point, not overly rely on because I we've also seen where that you know gratitude to the extreme actually can make you feel like less than. It's really fascinating. There's this there's this bell shaped curve to the idea. Yeah. Sonia Lubomirsky has done some great work in that area. And, but I think, you know, when I've heard you share the way your approach, I think that it's a toolkit, right? And so you figure out what works for you. Physicians really do understand the bell curve. I think that's what's unfortunate. Um, and not the way I want to end the podcast, but, you know, one of the issues, um, you know, kind of circling back to what you asked me, you know, what was sort of the motivation of the book is, you know, we take the science that does help a, a segment of folks and that if it doesn't work for you, that doesn't necessarily mean that other things aren't going to work for you. And so I find that uh, I guess if there's one last piece of wisdom, it's like, yeah, if this gratitude didn't work for you. There's still a whole host of other tools. And so that's part of the fun, right? Experiment with it, like experiment with, you know, connecting with your fun friend, experiment with gratitude, experiment with finding micro joys experiment with joy spotting, like even just seeing if other folks are having, um, you know, joy around you so that you're kind of, you know, see the benefits and the smiles and maybe potentially benefit from social contagion. You know, um, some of these things are going to be resonant with you and some aren't because we all have different preferences. It's actually why I find fun so fascinating, right? Because it really is unique to us. Although, you know, wanting to live a pleasurable life is universal. So, you're, you're spot on. And I, I think you're taking the right approach there. It's like, it's an invitation. And if it's not working for you, don't let that, you know, don't let it cause you moral injury. Just realize that's not the tool for you. Michael, you've taken us on a wonderful journey this morning and, and I'm excited about being able to share this with uh, our listeners and, and hopefully invite new people on that journey. How can people find you, get in touch with you, follow you uh, and, and the things that you you're sharing? I appreciate that. So uh, most of my writing is on michaelrecker.com. I write for a lot of lay media as well, you know, Psychology Today, et cetera. And all of that, though, is accessible from that website. And then, of course, you already mentioned the book is out on Habit. So thanks for that invitation. 
Oh, absolutely. Thanks for spending time with us. So, Myra, always a pleasure. I appreciate your insights today as well. And I think it added a, a wonderful dimension to those who uh, normally tune in to the podcast. And I look forward to seeing you uh, very soon. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Wellbeing Connector podcast. The Coalition for Physician Wellbeing presents conversations with professionals who support wholeness within their organizations. Our guests understand that in the pursuit of wholeness, we must encompass the physical, mental, social, and spiritual health care of each individual in order to reinvigorate their purpose and meaning. If you would like to hear more episodes, please visit www.forphysicianwellbeing.org forward slash podcast.